Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service already in progress. Our scripture for today is, uh, first of all, from Matthew 26, verses 36 through 39, and then from Acts 2, verses 24 through 28. So we'll begin with Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible... May this cup be taken from me, but not as I will, but as you will. And now for Acts second. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. Let's pray. Father, on this Easter morning, we want to praise your name. You sent your only Son to suffer greatly and to die but to be resurrected, all for us, to take the blame for our sins, even though we don't deserve it. And just like the song we sing sometimes says, uh, we can only imagine what kind of a sacrifice that must have been. So today, Lord, we just ask that you will fill this place with your spirit. Please uh, help read to deliver your message to us with power and, and boldness and I'm asking that each person here will, will dramatically hear your word. And as Josh said, not, not just hear it, but respond to it and respond to the direction that you give us. So, Lord, this morning, this Easter, we're all so grateful for that empty tomb. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning to all of you. So glad to have you here with us today on this Easter Sunday. And we do celebrate Easter with joy, with great joy, because Jesus Christ is risen. And the emphasis is to be on joy, because we love and serve a risen Savior. But the whole Easter story is really a combination of emotional extremes, sorrow and joy. Humiliation and exaltation, darkness and light, agony and ecstasy, death and resurrection. And it is important to see that the resurrection is not just a standalone event. The resurrection is deeply connected to the sufferings of Jesus 
and to the reasons for that suffering. His agony, his crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection are all intertwined. You can't separate them. The resurrection certainly is the culmination of the story. But without the events that led up to it, no one's life would be changed. No one's sins would be paid for. It is the suffering that allows us to celebrate the resurrection. It is the agony that leads to the ecstasy. You know, this morning we could just stand up here and say, Hooray, Jesus is risen. Uh, we could, you know, wave banners and sing the songs. And, and we should do that, by the way. But if we do that without knowing what Jesus went through and why and what he accomplished for us, our joy would be very short-lived and shallow because we really wouldn't know why the resurrection brings joy. So this morning, I want to help us understand why the resurrection brings joy. We need, I need, you need a resurrection joy that we can hang on to even when our life is in the depths of problems or despair. So this morning, I want to start in the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. The story of resurrection really begins with us seeing Jesus in the most extreme personal anguish. It is Thursday night, the day before Jesus' trial and crucifixion. He is in the garden, a place called Gethsemane. The name Gethsemane means olive press. The Garden of Gethsemane was a place on the Mount of Olives where olives were pressed into oil. Other than that, we know very little about the garden other than what you might imagine a garden to be. But we do know much about the unbearable agony that Jesus suffered there in the garden. And the name of the garden, Olive Press, is symbolic of the way Jesus was pressed or crushed that night in the garden. He experienced the most extreme pressure any man has ever endured. You know, if you may think of Jesus as sort of a stoic, a non-human person who just lived and died and rose again in some sort of uh, detached, unemotional, ho-hum sort of way, I mean, you are so wrong. As Isaiah 53 said, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He really did agonize over the torture of the cross. He was horrified at the guilt, the sin, the shame, the death he was to take on, and the separation from the Father that was before him. The resurrection is bright and happy, and we're going to get to that, but Gethsemane is dark, it's distressing, it's deep, it is disturbing to our thoughts and emotions. We don't like to watch someone who is in pain and agony. I remember when one of our boys was uh, stepped on a bunch of glass uh, out at Gray's Lake and was taken to the doctor and the bottom of his foot was all stitched up with, I don't remember how many, 20, 30 stitches. I mean, can't bear to watch that. We don't like to see suffering, pain, and agony. But it is important for us to know what happened here. In the garden, Jesus agonized over what he was about to endure for you and for me. 
for our sins and for the sins of the world. He saw what was coming. He knew fully what was coming. And he struggled in the deepest sorrow, in terror, and even depression to accept all that was before him. At Gethsemane, we see Jesus, in a sense, living the cross ahead of time in his soul. And I think we can somewhat understand that. Whenever you face something extremely hard in your life, you feel the emotions of that ahead of time. Uh, we dread or fear something that we don't want to face. We agonize over it. This will never happen because I am a man, but if I know if I ever had to deliver a baby, I am sure I would agonize over the pain of the contractions, the birth, the delivery, and I would agonize over that ahead of time. Well, in the garden, Jesus lived the experience of bearing the sins of the world ahead of time. He was in agony in anticipation of bearing our sins in his body on the tree, as Peter says. The emphasis here in the garden is totally on Jesus. I read a, a sermon by a guy who wrote about the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, you really don't hear too many messages about the Garden of Gethsemane because it's all about Jesus and it's not about us. And we like to hear sermons about us. But the garden is all about Jesus. The emphasis is totally on Jesus and the price Jesus paid for your sin, and for your salvation, and for mine. Gethsemane is all about what Jesus went through to save us, to save you. It is not about what you need to do to get saved. There is, there is no self-help message here. There is no message of just do better, try harder, be a more positive, better person. The message of Gethsemane is see what Jesus did here for you. See what he suffered for you. See his love here for you. He is the one who has done all the suffering needed to atone for your sins and for mine. He is the one who has done all that is necessary to save your soul. All you can do is respond to this. All you can do is come to him. All you can do is believe what he did for you. And the filth of your sin is instantly removed. Come to him and all will be well between you and God. Believe on him and you will have peace with God. Not through what you have done, but through what he has done and what he suffered in agony for you. It's also important to know that this was no normal person here in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was the son of God eternally with God and was God, as John tells us. We sing a, one of my favorite songs that we sing here at church has a line in it that says, View him prostrate in the garden, on the ground your maker lies. View him prostrate in the garden, on the ground your maker lies. John himself said, He was in the world and the world was made by him, and the world did not know him or recognize him. This is the one who was here in the garden in such agony. He was innocent. He was sinless, pure, full of goodness and kindness. Uh, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. 
He was merciful to sinners, compassionate, and a lover of people. He was so pure in his righteousness and his love that he was willing to suffer deeply for sinners, for his enemies, for people who were indifferent to him, for people who would neglect him, for people who ignored him, even for those who hated him. That night in the garden, Jesus knew what he was facing. He knew fully what he was facing. He knew he would be deserted by his friends. He predicted it. He knew Peter would deny him. He predicted that. He knew he would face a cruel and unjust trial motivated by pure hatred. He knew they would spit on him and mock him and flog him. The sharp pieces of glass and nails embedded in long strips of leather would tear open his flesh and leave long bloody stripes across his back. He knew he was to be crucified. He knew they would drive spikes through his hands and his feet and execute him through the torture of crucifixion. He knew all this, and it was overwhelmingly depressing. But it is something more than this that caused him such agony in the garden. It was the spiritual agony that troubled his soul so deeply. Christ's agony was due to the weight of human sin placed on him there. There are many men of God, including Spurgeon and others, who believe that it was actually in the garden that he began to bear the weight of our human sin. It was in the garden that he began to take on himself the burden, the guilt of the sins of all the world. And he would experience separation from his father. And he would suffer the punishment of sins in our place. He would suffer the wrath of God against sins in the garden and through the next several hours. Certainly, I don't want to misunderstand, the core of our atonement was his death on the cross. But it was in the garden that he agonized over the price of going to the cross. It was in the garden that we see the toll that it took on him physically, emotionally, and most importantly, spiritually. The agony and the pain and the horror of bearing the sins of the world was so great. This was the cause of this intense struggle that we see going on in his soul. Matthew twenty six thirty six, Jesus said to his disciples, sit over here, sit here while I go over here and pray. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus was not an exaggerator. He was not prone to making excessive emotional statements. But he said, I am in such extreme sorrow right now that I am near to the point of death. Not death on a cross, but near to death right now, right here in the garden. Luke said in chapter 22, verse 26, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. This has been normally taken to mean that he was in such anguish that his sweat was actually mixed or mingled with blood. 
And that if we would have seen him there, we would have seen his sweat as drops of blood forming on his body and dripping from his body. It is actually possible to die from anguish. And it is actually possible to sweat blood. The ESV study notes on this verse says, There are accounts on record of people sweating blood, a condition known as hematidrosis, where extreme anguish or physical strain causes one's capillary blood vessels to dilate and burst, mixing blood with sweat. But the point is the extreme emotional, physical, and spiritual agony that Jesus was undergoing here in the garden. Jesus was so near to the point of death that perhaps this is why Luke says God sent an angel to strengthen him. God sent an angel to strengthen him, perhaps even to keep him alive so that he could complete his mission to give his life as an atoning sacrifice. For our sins. Some of you, probably not all of you, but some of you, many of you perhaps, have had a Gethsemane-like experience where you feel like if it were possible, you would sweat drops of blood. Where you just do not know if you can face another day. You feel such pain in your heart and in your emotions, that it, it translates into such pain in your body, you just don't know if you can go on living. If you have felt that, that will help you to understand something of what Jesus felt. I have had my own Garden of Gethsemane moments, and I have great compassion for those of you who have suffered like that. But we cannot even begin to understand or plummet the depths of darkness that Jesus felt here in the garden as the sin bearer of the world. The sorrow, the terror of bearing the sins of the world, of having the Father's wrath poured out upon him, of being made a curse for us is a sorrow and an agony that is beyond description. In verse 39 of Matthew 26, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. You know, there's, there's all kinds of prayer, and I'm sure you pray, maybe in your car, maybe when you're doing dishes, maybe when, uh, before you go to bed at night. But the most intense kinds of prayer is when, without even thinking, it just drives you to the ground. You fall on your face to the ground, and you call out to God, you cry out to God. That's the kind of deep, deep prayer that Jesus was praying here. He prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. It is clear from, from what we understand of the Old Testament that the cup is typically refers to uh, judgment or to wrath. It is clear from this that, that taking the cup to Jesus meant taking upon himself the wrath of God, drinking that cup in your place and in my place. Verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup 
to be taken away unless I drink it. May your will be done. Verse 44, he went away once more and he prayed, this, he prayed the third time saying the same thing. Three times of the most intense prayer possible. Three times of intense prayer to line up his will with all that was before him. Make no mistake, Jesus always wanted to do his Father's will. He lived his whole life with the knowledge of why he came and what he had to go through. John tells us in chapter 12, verse 27, uh, Jesus said, Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus knew that it was for this very reason that he had came into the world. He knew that all along that was his mission, that he came to die. He came to take on the sins of the world. But it was still a struggle. In his humanity, it was still a tremendous struggle. It was a, a struggle to face and accept what was before him. It was so great. The struggle was so great that he cried out, If there is another way, Father, let it be. If it is possible for this to happen any other way, let it be that way. But Jesus never debated whether he would do the will of God or not. Just in his extreme anguish, he asked if there was another way. And then he quickly added, but as you will, Father, and may your will be done. And of course, that will was done. Jesus went from the garden to the trial, to the flogging, to the cross, to give his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And all of this was done out of immense love. One of the most important things I would like you to see this morning is the immense love of the Savior for you to do this. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. 1 John 3.16 says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. This is how we understand that we are loved. This is how we understand the love of God. So, in the garden, see his love for you. In his agony and anguish, see his love for you. As he sweat drops of blood, see his love for you. For you, See how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ for you. But Christ did not remain in agony. He did not remain on the cross or in the grave. Out of all of Jesus' suffering came tremendous joy. Joy inexpressible. The resurrection brought inexpressible joy. It brought it for his disciples... For us, and even for him. When Jesus Christ was crucified and buried, it seemed to his disciples that all hope was gone. It seemed perhaps maybe that they had been deceived or that Jesus had let them down. They had followed Jesus for three years and even come to the point of 
believing that he was the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the Son of God. Had they followed him for three years and believed all that only to see him die and rot in a grave like every other man? But when Jesus came out of the grave, when he rose from the dead and appeared to them, they were overjoyed. It was complete ecstasy. Jesus is alive. He is who he said he was. Jesus is the Christ. And I love the statement in Matthew where it says the, the women uh, who heard the announcement from the angel, it says they hurried away from the tomb, filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. I mean, you can just, you can just see the joy of the moment in that. The relief. No, Jesus is alive. All that he claimed about himself is true. I'm going to go run and tell the disciples great joy. The resurrection brings inexpressible joy to us because the resurrection is proof that Jesus is the Lord, that he is the Savior of the world. Acts 17.31 says, God furnished proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Because of the resurrection, this man who we see and we've talked about who has suffered in the garden and on the cross is shown, is proved to be the Son of God. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says, Jesus Christ our Lord was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. God did become man. He did walk among us. He was here. He did reveal himself to us. This was the Son of God who was sent into this world crucified, and now risen again. The resurrection validates that Jesus really did bear our sin in his body. You know, all of the Old Testament prophecies predicted this coming Savior. The Old Testament sacrifices all pointed to this. Every time a lamb was killed or offered as a sacrifice, it pointed to a coming Savior who would pay for the sins of the world. The angel told Joseph, he shall save his people from their sins. John the Baptist proclaimed, proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. The resurrection proves that this really was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The resurrection proves that Jesus really was this one who was promised, who would take all our iniquities upon himself. But you see, without the resurrection, none of this is true. Without the resurrection, this man suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane was just some poor, pathetic soul dealing with the terror of being tortured and executed. Thousands were executed by crucifixion in the Roman Empire. Jesus would have been just one more. His suffering would have been sad, terribly sad, but would have accomplished nothing for you and me at all if not for the resurrection. It is the resurrection that proved that what he did in bearing our sins on the cross was valid and real. Jesus took the punishment for our sins, for, for our crimes, as it were, against God. He took our penalty, our, punish, our punishment, our sentencing that we deserved, our sentence of death for our crimes against the holy God. 
And then he proved that he was the one worthy to do that by rising from the dead. The resurrection brings great joy because the resurrection proves that God accepted his suffering and death as the complete and final payment for our sins. The work is finished. Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Justification is a legal term. It means to be declared righteous. You are excused from your penalty and you are declared righteous and set free. That's what justification means. It is more than just having our sins removed. It certainly means that all of our sins are removed, but it is more than that. It means that we are credited with righteousness, that God, He takes away our sins and He gives us something in the place of the ugliness of our sins. He gives us His righteousness. And the resurrection was God's stamp of approval that Jesus Christ had earned our justification. It was God's way of declaring that the penalty for our sin had been paid and no guilt remains. There's an old hymn that says, Gone, 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 all my sins are gone. Now my soul is free and in my heart's a song. I mean, the reason for our joy in the resurrection is that it proves our sins are really gone. No fear, no guilt in, in life, no fear in death. I think we sang even that words this morning. No guilt in life, no fear in death. Because it proves our sins are gone. Buried in the deepest sea. Yes, that's good enough for me. As that old hymn I referred to goes on to say. Finally, the resurrection brought great joy to Jesus himself. And you know, I am so glad that it did. I see the suffering. that The, the one who loved me. The one who loved you went through in the garden. I see what he went through for you and for me. And I am so glad that God, in his justice and righteousness, raised him up and gave him great, great joy. God had said, I will free him from his agony and I will give him great joy in my presence. We love that verse from the psalm that talks about having fullness of joy in his presence. And Peter's going to tell us, that's about Jesus. I mean, it certainly applies to us too. But God's not going to allow his son to remain in agony. He's going to raise him up and fill him with great joy in his presence. And that's what Peter said in Acts 2, the passage that we read this morning. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. Then Peter added, David said this about Christ. My heart is glad and my tongue rejoices because... You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will let your Holy One see decay, but you fill me, you will fill me with joy in your presence. Peter confirmed who, he, who this was speaking about by saying, he goes on in that verse to say, David, seeing what was ahead, spoke of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.8, God says this to his son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Interesting that he dresses the son as O God. 
which is one of the points of the book of Hebrews. Your throne, O God, speaking to the Son, to Jesus Christ, is forever and ever. Righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. He's saying that God has chosen to anoint Jesus with the oil of gladness, the joy above everybody else. I mean, I take that to mean that though Jesus suffered more than any other human being in the garden and through what he went through in the cross, he was exalted to greater joy than any, any man, any human being has ever known. That's the agony, the extreme agony. There's no agony that you've ever known in your life that is deep, as severe as what Jesus suffered. And we have not yet known the fullness of joy that Jesus now knows being given by the Father. But we will. We share in it now, certainly, and we'll know it fully and completely and perfectly and eternally someday, also at the right hand of the Father in heaven next to Jesus. 700 years before Jesus came, Isaiah said this about him. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Out of the travail of his soul, he will see the happy results of his sufferings. When Jesus rose from the dead, he saw the results of his sufferings. And it gave him infinite joy and pleasure and deep, deep satisfaction. When he saw all that was accomplished by his suffering, when he saw all that was accomplished by his suffering from the garden to the cross, he was satisfied. His suffering was not in vain. It was not without results. It bore fruit. It produced something wonderful. That is the fruit of of all who believe in him. You and I are that fruit. All the people who trust in Jesus to save him are part of that fruit. So his joy at the resurrection comes in knowing that as a result of his anguish and death, a large number of souls are saved, justified, born again, and will be brought to heaven with him. Again, as Isaiah prophesied, by bearing our iniquities, he justified the many, or lots of people. So today, Jesus has great joy in heaven at the Father's right hand. We do not serve a dead Jesus. Jesus is not still on the cross. He is a living, risen Savior who always lives to pray for you and me. He always lives to make intercession for us, and he is present with us through his spirit. And you know what? He does this with the greatest of joy. He does this with great, great joy. And what began with extreme sorrow in the garden has ended with extreme joy. What began in agony has ended in ecstasy. What began with the burden of taking on the sins of the world ended with Jesus risen from the dead, freed from the grave, and now enjoying with great pleasure and satisfaction the result of his suffering. He takes pleasure in you. He is satisfied by seeing you who believe in him and who have put your trust in him 
his, as, as Savior and Lord. This is his joy and his satisfaction for the anguish of his soul. Now, the key is for us. I do want to bring this down to us. Do you really believe this? Do you really put your trust in this? Lots of people have heard about the death and resurrection of Jesus. There will be lots of people all across the world um, who will hear something about the death and resurrection of Jesus. There will be many people who may even say, oh yeah, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But do, do you want the resurrection to benefit your life? Do you want it to make a difference in your life? Do you want it to wash away your sins? Do you want it to change your destiny from hell to heaven? Well, here's how. Romans 4, 22 through 24 puts it this way. The words, it was credited to him as righteousness, were not written to Abraham alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And here's the wonderful promise here. It says, if you believe God, if you personally put your trust in God, if you believe God concerning or regarding the resurrection, what does it say he will do? He will credit that to you as righteousness. Do you want to be completely forgiven of all your sins? Do you want God to give you, to credit you, to count you as righteous? Do you want Him to credit your life with the perfect, sinless, holy, pure righteousness of Jesus in place of the blackness and the darkness and the impurity of your sins? Here's how. You put your trust in God who raised Jesus from the dead. Romans 10 says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I love that promise. It's so direct. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and that inherent is that is that he's risen. Jesus is the risen Lord. You confess that with your mouth. You identify with that. You're willing to, willing to go before people. You're willing to say, hey, yes, that's what I believe. I, I confess Jesus as Lord. And I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. This promise is so sure. You will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are, and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. We had a baptism here last week. There were people who got up here and confessed Jesus as Lord. And the sure promise is you will be saved. So we latch onto this salvation not by doing some great work, but by, be, but by believing what Jesus did for us in his death and resurrection. Believe this and you will be saved. For those here this morning who put your faith in Christ maybe a long time ago, maybe even as a child, and 
Um, you've lived many, many years in a relationship with Christ. Here's what I'd like you to take away from this, primarily. Look at what kind of savior, savior you have. Look at what kind of Jesus you serve. You serve one who would go through agony for you. You serve someone who sweat drops of blood for you. Someone who would be scorned for you. They would be willing to be absolutely humiliated for you. You serve one who set aside all self-interest and comfort for your sake. You serve someone who is willing to go to the cross for you. Someone who's, who is willing to suffer rejection and humiliation and shame for you. I mean, you can have a lot of friends, but very few friends will suffer social rejection and shame and scorn on your behalf. Put yourself in a situation where if they're to stay your friend, they would have to be scorned and humiliated or shamed by society and watch them run. But Jesus is faithful. He loves you to the end. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them with an ultimate kind of love, with a perfect kind of love. He loves you with that kind of love. He is willing to undergo anything to come and get you and to love you and to redeem you, to rescue you from your sin and your life of sin. And he was raised for you too. It says he was raised for our benefit, for our justification. He was raised so that you might be justified, so that you might have peace with God, so that you might know Jesus Christ personally and have new life. And so I say, this morning as we celebrate the resurrection, should we not feel loved? Should we not love this kind of Savior? And should we not greatly rejoice in him with joy inexpressible and full of glory? I say we should. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending your son and, and Lord Jesus, how we, how we love you for loving us, how we love you for what you went through, how you proved your love so dramatically by the anguish and suffering that you went through on our behalf. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord, that we may see the depth and the length and the breadth and the height of your love for us. And may we be stunned by your love for us this morning. May we, may we be filled with great joy this morning because of what you have done for us. And I pray, I pray earnestly, God, I pray fervently right now in this moment for that person, for maybe several people, who are here this morning and you are not their Savior. They don't know you in this way. And I pray for them this morning that this morning they would throw open the doors and come to you and receive you as their Lord and Savior and would allow you to wash away all their sin and guilt and despair and to be filled truly for the first time with the joy of Jesus Christ and the joy of 
of the risen Lord. Now as we sing this final uh, song together, God, uh, fill us with great joy and keep these things, the things that we've talked about this morning, may they be sealed upon our hearts and may we never forget them. Leave a lasting impact upon us, Lord, through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.